you're going from point A to point B. You kind of know how to get there. Maybe you've even set it in your GPS. You're kind of working along this process, and then somehow something gets you lost. It's always something else, right? It's never us. But think about it for a minute. If you know that story, you know they go into the woods, and they have this image of a banquet table, and they decide to go off the path and eat, and then they never find the path, and they all end up in jail. Right? So that's how that story kind of works out. It's an intense thing. So they're on this journey, and something pops up and takes them off the path. So I have a question for you. When's the time that you got lost and something took you off the path? Okay, so I'm going to give you 30 seconds each. I'm going to have you look to your neighbor. Uh, it, it'd be great if you did it with somebody outside your family so we don't have any fights about directions um, when we're done. But, but take 30 seconds and just tell your neighbor hey, when's the time that you got lost and what's the thing that got you lost, all right? So I'll give you 30 seconds and then we'll switch and do 30 seconds the other way. So find a partner real quick. 30 seconds. What was the thing that got you lost? Go ahead. All right, switch. The other person. All right, good job. I'm going to tell you one of mine. So you have a bunch of them, so I'll tell you one. Uh, way back, just out of college, I had the opportunity to hike with some guys. It was five of us. We started at that top arrow in a little place called Leadville, Colorado, and we hiked from there all the way down to Durango. So that's a picture of the state of Colorado. So it's three and a half weeks, and we went on this backpacking trip. So one day on this trip, I decided I was a little tired, so I decided to sleep in a little bit. And so the other four guys took off, and I stayed sleeping for a little bit. So I got up, got on my journey, and I was tracking down things. And there was a mountain that looked about just like this one, just super awesome. So I'm, I'm walking down the trail, and I'm looking at this mountain, just, just taking my time, looking at it. And I keep walking, and eventually the, the little path kind of turned into this bigger road. So I say, oh, okay, that's not uncommon when you're out hiking that the road would change, you know, from different ways because of how they run the trail. So I'm just hiking along, hiking along, and eventually that road comes to an end. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> I thought we were on the path here. So I start looking around, and I see these little ribbons tied into different trees. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they marked out the trail with these ribbons going through the trees. So, so I hike down towards these ribbons, and I'm going down the side of a mountain now, and, and I hike down some of these ribbons, and then that trail stops. I'm like, oh, no. So I look around, and I see some more ribbons. So I go over, and I hike that one, and then that stops. This happens about four or five times, and now I'm about halfway back up the mountain. And I'm going like, oh, no, man, I am lost. Like, I have no idea where those four guys are. I have no idea how fast they're hiking. Like, I'm a Sherpa for the one guy, so he paid for my trip, so I'm carrying five pounds of his food, so he's not going to eat, right? I'm totally lost. I'm totally lost. And so I started backtracking, and I, I finally found the road again, and I took the road all the way back to the trail, and right about where this mountain is, you can kind of see it in the picture, but it's not real obvious, but right here is this giant post, <laughs> It was on my right, and the mountain was on my left, and I walked right by it. It had all kinds of colored ribbons tied to it, and it said, this way. I missed it. Missed it. It's an example of maybe what one of those posts looks like. So have you ever done that? You kind of know you're on a journey, you're doing something, and then suddenly you find yourself off the path. You've been lost. That same kind of thing is happening to the church in Colossae. So the Colossians, there are things that are popping up that run the risk of taking them off the path if they're not careful. So I wanted to say, like, I have, I have struggled to grasp Colossians this time around. Like, I've taught this book for years. I've used it in youth ministry. I've processed it out. Uh, I have things that I write and talk about it. But I kept reading this over and over again, and I felt like, man, I am not getting it. I'm not getting it. I'm feeling like I'm lost here in the book. And then it clicked this week because I think I got a different picture of Colossians, and I think you'll understand it a little bit more, too, as we look at this. We're going to look at some of the things 
that could take the Colossian church off the path. So Paul is writing to these people. They believe in Jesus. They've received the gospel. They're doing great things. He's super excited to hear about their faith. But simultaneous to that, there are things that are popping up that could derail them and take them off of the way of the gospel. So there are five of them. So we're going to cover all five of them. As we go through each one, we're going to ask, are any of these issues that took the Colossian church off the path still practiced today or still something we should pay attention to? So here's the first one. There's five threats to the Colossian church. The first one is plausible arguments that delude you. So way back at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, I'm saying this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. A plausible argument is a reasonable thought that if you believe it, it could impose a misbelief on you. It would be so rational and so thought out that you would buy into it, and without knowing it, you would find that you've just believed something that's false. So when you think back to the culture of their time, Greek and Roman philosophy was huge. So I actually looked back into this this week. I was digging in through some old philosophy stuff. I know that's what you guys do in your spare time. But I was digging into some of this because I wanted to see what was the prevailing cultural thought of their time. So there's this guy right here. Uh, His last name is Rufus. So I don't know how to say his other name. But his goal in philosophy was that he was convinced that the power of philosophy that was over the mind of people, that if you did that well, that it would heal the corruption of all humankind. In other words, man could think himself into being better and remove all corruption. One of his disciples was a man named Epictetus. Now, Epictetus is very important here because he grew up in a neighboring city to Colossae, about 10 miles away. So it would be like uh, up by Deptford, maybe, that he would be from there to here. So he grew up in that kind of culture, and he was probably around his teenage years at the time Paul was writing this to the church of Colossians. So you see the, the prevailing thought. So this is what this guy taught And I want you to hear it. He said, reason alone is good, the irrational is evil, and the irrational is intolerable of the rational. The good person should labor chiefly on their own reason to perfect this in our power. To repel evil opinions by the good is the noble contest in which humans should engage. It is not an easy task, but it promises true freedom, peace of mind, and a divine command over the emotions. The first object of philosophy is to purify the mind. And here's what he says going on after that. The essence of divinity is goodness. We have all good that could be given to us. The deities, too, gave us the soul and reason, which is not measured by breadth or depth, but by knowledge and sentiments, and by which we attain to greatness and may be equal even with the deities... He says, if we wish for nothing but what God wills, we shall truly be free. Doesn't that sound cool? Like if you just wish for what God would will, then you could be free. That's actually something Christians teach. But if you're not careful, the rest of his philosophy goes on to say this. And we will come to pass according to our desire and we shall be as little subject to restraint as Zeus himself. He's not talking about the will of God. He's talking about different gods. But it's such a plausible argument that has just enough shade of Christianity that it ran the risk of pulling the Colossians off the path. It's a significant thing. So that's some of the prevailing philosophy from somebody that grew up near Colossae, and that was taught in those days. So that's what they went through, right? But what about us? Do we deal with any kind of things like that today? Absolutely we do. Greg talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's called secular humanism. It's the idea that people are good without God, that we're okay as men and as people because we can solve all of our problems. It's a, it's a strange and peculiar thing because if you have people that are of like mind, they can kind of get together and work some things out, and it looks very good. But I want you to see where secular humanism takes us. This is what it claims. It claims that we stand at the brink of an entirely new age of human achievement and potential, one that will unify the world 
and bring an end to war and an end to hunger through a redistribution of the world's resources and population control. It will lead to the conservation of the Earth's environment, result in genuine equality among all races and religions, and between men and women, and provide a global ethic that will unite the human family. That's a very plausible argument, isn't it? That sounds so amazing. But did you catch the part of how they're going to do it? Population control. That in order to unite the world, it would involve eradicating people. We have to be careful of this philosophy in our day. It's very similar to what was going on in the time of the Colossians. Because if you're not careful, you could buy into something that would endorse that and find out that you're part of the thing that will be eradicated. Do you know whose philosophy that was? Some of you remember, some of you don't even know. That was the philosophy of Adolf Hitler. We'll create one unique race that rules it all, and we'll do that by wiping others out. It's crazy. See, there are good things that man wants to do, but every time man seems to set out on something that would be considered good, there's something else evil that rises with it. And it can be so just subtly twisted in that if you're not paying careful attention, you'll find yourself off the path. So there's another one that we interact with all the time. It's called the internet. Some of you know, like the internet started out as a really good thing. It started out as a way for researchers to share raw data. And then it moved into a place of commerce and it's transformed our lives in a lot of good ways. But again, when there's something that man does that's good and it rises up, inevitably there's something evil that rises with it. Now, the internet is not just this cool, connectable thing. It's a place where, like, perverts can prey on children. It's a place where ad companies are allowed to steal your information and use it. It's a place where people's identities can get stolen. It's a place that even allows body parts to be sold across the world. See, it was good in the beginning, but every time something good comes, there's a parallel evil that rises with it and always tries to distort it. That is why man cannot fix this mess in and of himself. The reason we can't is because we weren't made to. We're trying to do something we weren't made for. So here's a, a, a bald guy. I have a lot of bald guy quotes today. But it says, all, this is N.T. Wright. He says, all power structures, ancient or modern, whether political, economic, or racial, they have the potential to become rivals to Christ beckoning his followers to, to submit themselves in order to find a fuller security. This invitation is as blasphemous as it is unnecessary. Christ tolerates no rivals. His people need no one but him. So if we are not careful, reasonable and plausible things will come along that can take us right off the path. So there's not, here's the second one. It's the philosophy and deceit of human traditions. So the practice of human traditions and what they would say. So Paul writes to the church back in the beginning of chapter 2 again, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, the, the Romans and Greek people had all kinds of gods. They had a god for everything. They had a god for the sky, the sea, the underworld, for marriage, for harvest, for hunting, for sex, for war, for music, for healing, for love, for wisdom, even a god for fire, right? You name it, they had a god for it. And each of those gods was assigned a specific purpose and value. So in that Roman belief system, if you wanted good fortune and good favor, you would do whatever was required to make the god happy so that they would give you the blessing. So they would try all these different things to appease the gods. If you want to be rich, offer a sacrifice this way. If you want a good job, offer a sacrifice like this. If you want to go to heaven, do this, A, B, C, and D. And then when Jesus comes along, well, no worries. Jesus offers some awesome stuff. So let's just fold him into all the other gods. Let's bring him in. We'll take what he has and we'll make him happy. But at the same time, we'll make all of these other, these other gods happy. So they're pursuing all of these gods, trying to ward off the evil and benevolent forces, and then rack up all of the blessings and all of the good life for themselves. So religion in that time, in that city, it started to wear the mask of Christianity. See, it used Christian words, Christian phrases, 
but with different meanings. That's why the definition of words is so important. I claim to have something for everybody, but in essence, it only provided a delusion, and it would take people captive to the traditions and practices that would lead them away from Jesus. See, it did not deny Christ. It did not say Christ is not welcomed here, but it did say that Jesus does not sit on the throne. So it didn't deny him, but it did dethrone him. It taught that Christ was insufficient and that one must go beyond him in order to have fullness. The crazy term for that, and it's a big term, is called religious syncretism. It's where we take a bunch of pieces of a bunch of different religions and we put them all together and make one thing. Do you know what that equals? That equals the force. That's what Star Wars is. It's a pick and choose of a bunch of different religions, and they meshed it together and made this one weird thing out of it that makes millions of dollars. It's religious syncretism at its finest. <laughs> but another way you can do that is you can start tweaking things, and you can take other things, and you can twist them. So the Greeks and Romans, I'll give you an example of what this looked like for them. So these religious practices, they would sync them up together, and then in the syncing of those things, they would establish traditions. And those traditions were expected to be carried out by everybody in the culture. So this really silly one that I found is this crazy thing. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the evil eye. Anybody ever been familiar with that phrase? You caught the evil eye? So that philosophy, that man-made tradition of the evil eye, it was predicated on the idea that if somebody looked at your life and was jealous or envious of you, that just by the power of their eyes, they could inflict a curse on you. They might even do it behind your back, and you'd get it. Crazy, right? Sounds wild, but somehow somebody gazing at you with a nasty look could cause you to have misfortune all of a sudden, or even cause you to feel physically sick or down. So in order to get rid of that, in order to protect yourself from the evil eye, you had to have an expert pray a very special prayer over you, and you had to put on a little blue stone that had a painted eyeball on it, and then any time that somebody were to say a compliment to you, then they were supposed to spit on you three times and say a certain word so that the curse of the evil eye couldn't get you. Sounds wild, right? But you got to take that and you got to put it into the Roman culture that had such a high value for tradition because they believed that if you strayed away from tradition, moral decay would happen. And there were even on occasions where people would break with the tradition of the Romans and they would say, that is subversive. You are trying to undermine us. So you Christians don't want to undermine us, do you? You don't want to be subversive and be hauled into court. See how quickly it changes? We go from something silly like the evil eye to now you're in court being thrown in prison. So does anything like that ever happen today? Does it? All the time. I'm going to blow your mind with something. But did you know that in 2017, a company was started called iLove? E-Y-E Love. They sell shoes like this. <laughs> That's the evil eye. There are people today that still believe if they wear an article of clothing with a blue painted eye, that they will be free from the evil eye and bad vibes. It's a two-year-old company. Can you believe it? Are Christians in our day, are we ever considered to be subversive? Absolutely. Seems like every time a Christian stands up for their belief, the media and the culture just drag them through the mud trying to get them to shut up. So they paint us in all kinds of ways. Like they've even gone so far that they take business licenses and take away jobs. Part of the population control. Now let's not forget... I want you to hear this very carefully. The Christians that were martyred in the Roman kingdom, they were not killed because they worshiped Jesus. They were killed because they refused to worship Jesus and Caesar. Anytime that worship has an and to it, it's the wrong kind of worship. So that religious syncretism of their day, it's all around in our day. There's so many, so many people are trying to pick the pieces of Jesus that they like and then leave the rest out. See, there's a way of doing life that has emerged in these days that has a shade of Christianity, but really denies who Jesus is. So I don't know if you remember this, but Diego, Diego talked about this a while ago. It's this little phrase that says, my life 
plus a little Jesus equals blessing for me. So he used a bookshelf like this. Remember, he said every one of these books represents an area of your life. So maybe this one is your, your parenting. Maybe this one is your friendships. Maybe this one's your theological beliefs. This one's your finances and so on and so on. So what we want to do is we want to get a little Jesus. Anybody see that over there? You guys see a little Jesus on the door? And we put a little Jesus in our life. And we keep him contained to one little space and one little thing. And we turn this into these goofy, like Christianized traditions where we say, if you want your life to go good, take what you need, ask God and say, Jesus, give me what I want and he'll give me the desire of my heart. We're using Christian language and Christian things, but we're limiting it. We're not opening it up to the true fullness of the faith because what he said is that this needs to be your life. Everything belongs to Jesus if you're a Christian. And we have these versions of the gospel that would say to you, if you want to be more wealthy, just tithe better and more consistently. And if you want to go to heaven, just pray this little prayer and the rest doesn't matter. That's not true faith. That's a distortion of the gospel. Paul warns the Galatians way back in Galatia, he said this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if, ever, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We need to stop reducing the gospel to a simple transaction because it leaves out suffering for Christ. It leaves out sacrificing for Jesus. It leaves out letting Jesus address the broken things of your heart and your flesh. We need a more robust gospel. We need to rediscover the gospel of scripture if we want to avoid the religious syncretism of our day. So if we are not careful, the philosophy and man-made traditions that surround us can lead us off the path. So here's another one. The third thing, religious observance. So therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What is he talking about there? Okay, so not only were there the Roman and Greek philosophies and false gods and syncretism of that time, in Colossae was also a community of Jewish people. And so the Jewish people in that day were looking at this weird Christian church that emerged and said, you guys aren't getting it. Like, you have to practice all of the things of the law the way Moses gave it, or you're not really saved. It doesn't really count if you don't come back and practice all of these festivals. So here's a list of the festivals that they would be required to observe if they were Jewish. So there's the Sabbath. There's the weekly rest that's on Saturday. The Jewish culture rests on Saturday. Christians rest on Sunday because that's the day Christ came back from the dead. We shifted it. But if it's not on Saturday, it doesn't count. You're breaking one of the commandments. See how that works? There's the Passover, there's the trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Festival of the Weeks, uh, the Tabernacle or Booths where they would go out and they would live in the wilderness. There's a couple that were added later after the law, one around Esther and then one around the cleansing of the temple. So that's where Purim and Hanukkah come from. But the Jews would go to these Christians, and they had the verses for it, right? See, look at, look at a couple of these festivals. They had these verses attached to them. So you shall make a proclamation on that same day, and you shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all of your dwelling places. Pretty blunt, isn't it? Another one of these festivals in the Old Testament came with this warning. For whoever is not afflicted around the Passover, meaning whoever doesn't fast and observe it, on that very day, they should be cut off from his people. <laughs> that person I will destroy from among his people. It's a statute forever throughout your generation. See, the Jews had the verses, and they were coming at the Colossians saying, listen, you have to practice these. You have to do these if you really want your faith to count. So in other words, if you don't practice these festivals, you don't get in. You're not really the, the person that you say you are because you don't count based on how you would observe these things on the outside. But see, what the Jews missed is that all of those festivals, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. See, Moses gave the law, he delivered it, but all of the law and all of the practice of the Old Testament, they just point you to Jesus. So all of the things of the Old Testament, they meet their end in Christ. He's fulfilled them all. 
But they kept saying, no, 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 Jesus needs to be fulfilled by the law. And they're saying, no, Jesus fulfilled the law. You need to receive what he did. And so you can see the tension that comes on. And see, there's a danger in this when we read that verse where Paul says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you with these questions about food or drink or with regard to those things, that we would throw them out all together. We would say, let's just scrap the Old Testament entirely because we don't need it anymore. It's done. And I would say, I think that's foolish because those things in the Old Testament explain Jesus in unique and compelling ways. We should pay attention to those. Do we need to practice these festivals? No, absolutely not. You don't need them to be saved. You need Jesus. You need the fulfillment that he provides. But is it wrong for you to do that? Is it wrong for you as a family if at Christmas time you wanted to walk back through Hanukkah? Absolutely not. You're totally okay to do that. You want to walk through some of those things and learn more about Christ and it's a help to your faith? Go for it. Step into it. But don't make it become an issue of salvation because it's not. And that's the danger that they were facing. They would take somebody's eternity and their adoption in Christ and they would say, because you didn't practice this day or because you didn't say this prayer, you don't count. That's a lie. If you're in Christ, you are qualified. And that's all you need. So what about in our day? Any of these religious observances and things get talked about in our time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to say a couple things here, and I, I run the risk of, of being harsh or offensive, so I don't mean to be that way at all. all right? I just want to be honest and just give you the candor that I sense behind these. So when I was a kid... Uh, I had like a nominal Catholic upbringing. So we would go to Catholic mass. We did Sunday school, CCD, those things. And then, you know, I obviously walked away from that. I found Jesus when I was 20 years old. Um, but I am amazed, uh, even shocked, as I've journeyed through the different Protestant experiences that I've had outside the Catholic church, at the animosity and nastiness that Protestants display towards Catholics and even sometimes other denominations that are Protestant. It's just striking to me. Like, I never heard anything negative about the Alliance, the Wesleyans, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Assemblies. I never heard anything negative about them from the Catholic Church. Never once. But when I get into Protestant circles, it's like, Ugh! there's some sort of mindset that if it has a shade of Catholicism, then it's all wrong. Even in the chapel service one time at my college, I heard a guy use the phrase, keep your rosary off my ovaries. Like, what is that? I'm still not quite sure what he was talking about, but I remember, like, like that is just crazy. I even heard some Arminian theologian kids from a college sing a song at a youth camp called Ricky Was a Calvinist, where they condemned Ricky to hell because he believed in predestination. Isn't it sad? Why do we hurt each other? And oh, it's just so challenging. We get into these religious observance issues in our church, and it hurts. So I'm so thankful to be a part of the Alliance Church where we try not to do that. We say, well, how can we work together instead of how can we pit ourselves against each other? That's a significant thing. But it, it shows up in our church. And I want to be real honest, about, about 10 days ago, we did an Ash Wednesday service here. It's not a biblical service. It's just a service that we thought would be helpful for us. Help us to get from where we are to the heart of God. And it was something, that, you know, the service was written by our district superintendent, and it had a few pieces of Catholic liturgy included in it. To the point that some were offended and hurt that we would do that. And the question got raised, is living faith becoming a Catholic church? Absolutely not. There are legitimate reasons why Protestantism exists, and I believe we would support those. But if you struggle with something like that, we're open to talk to you about it. Because I know there were people that have come from a Catholic upbringing that suffered terrible wounds in, in that denomination. And if you're hurting and you're unable to attend those things because that reminds you of something, you have a past to not participate. But we'd also encourage you, bring it to the table, put it in the light so we can help you, so we can talk it through. Because when it comes to the organization and the process of worship in our church, 
We would want you to live free in Jesus, not bound. See, the whole of church history belongs to us, and we're going to borrow from it when we feel like it is helpful for us to get to God. We're not going to be a slave to it, but we're not going to ignore it. It's part of who we are. It's even part of where we've come from. See, the whole church belongs to us, not just a little slice. So we would be wise to not disqualify a church just based on past hurts. So if any of those things, even when we read the Apostles' Creed or something else like that, that anchors us to the history of our faith, if that, if that bothers you or raises an issue of conscience, let's talk. Let's talk, because it's important to go through that. All right, so you know that part. I want to make sure that we said that, because it's not the observance of a special service that ever saves us or qualifies us. It's only a mode to help us encounter God. So there's another thing in the church that I want to talk about a little bit too, another religious observance issue. And it's these words, maybe you've heard of them, missional versus attractional. Anybody understand what those mean? So in other words, the attractional model is let's crank it up with all of the crazy things. Let's throw go-karts out in the parking lot. Let's uh, you know, have bouncy castles and everything, and we'll get the whole neighborhood to show up here. Versus the missional model that says, well, let's go meet in houses and invite people over for coffee and have spiritual conversations. One's more biblical than the other is usually where it lands. Sad, isn't it? Sometimes you need both. But the answer to this attractional thing that got very big, uh, all these mega churches, the ridiculousness, the over-the-top stuff, it got pitted with this missional thing that said, in order to be missional, you need to embrace a radical kind of lifestyle. But unfortunately, that just takes one thing and replaces it with another. It doesn't really get us anywhere. So here's a, another bald guy. He says, consumer Christianity is a pandemic in the American church, but a prescription of radical activism is not the remedy. It robs people of their joy, it burdens them with guilt, and it fails to draw people into passionate communion with Christ. It's a significant thing. This guy wrote this coming out of a conversation with a mom who lived in the suburbs, and she said, how radical is radical enough? Should I sell my house and my car? Is it wrong for my kids to be attending a private school? Do I need to move overseas and work with orphans? So I really want to experience the Christian life, but I'm wondering if that's even possible here in the suburbs. See, there has become a mindset in the church that if you don't cash out your 401k and don't start a prison ministry, or you don't refuse to have children so that you can take care of orphans, your life doesn't really count for Jesus. That's nonsense. So I was talking to Diego, who's not a ball guy. And he said, sometimes we prefer the extremes because it gives us a sense of conclusion, finality, and control. Faith invites us to live in between extremes. Not necessarily in the middle, but somewhere between the extremes. We sometimes don't like where faith takes us. So I want to issue an apology to you as a pastor. I believe that no matter what your career is, no matter your phase or stage of life, your life matters for Jesus. I've believed that for a long time. If you're a math teacher, your life counts. If you're a public school teacher in some way, or you're working in a healthcare field, your life counts. But sometimes we don't present it like that. So here's some questions that I want to just kind of run by you. They come from one of those other bald guys. He says, what does it mean to be in business and to glorify God and bless others? I want to make sure we talk about those things too. Not just about mission, not just about personal life devotions, but how does Christ want me to engage in the healthcare sector? Does being an artist matter to God? Yes. How do I serve in the public school system as a follower of Christ? Some of the greatest Christian influences in my life, even when I didn't know it, were from the public schools. See, apart from not being dishonest, does it matter how I run my business? Absolutely. Your business should be for more than making money. See, I've been offered two jobs. How do I discern which one to take? Can I be a soldier and be a Christian? 
Does my work have any meaning apart from the money I earn and giving to the church? See, your vocation is a central part of your discipleship. It's a central part to your Christian life and your spiritual formation. And I just want to apologize that the church has not always done a good job of helping you see that. I'm going to try to be a better pastor in helping those things get more clear. So I want to do a better job of equipping you, and especially the young adults who are kind of in between phases. How do you do your career for God? How do you do what you're doing right now for him? It doesn't necessarily involve being a missionary overseas somewhere or doing something ridiculous. It's another bald guy quote. It's not just radical when you behave like a missionary or social activist in your free time. Even working the assembly line becomes a holy activity when done with God. So if we're not careful, just like the Colossians, the religious stuff, the religious observances, and the, what, the weight we would put on those could lead us off the path. So here's, here's uh, one more. Asceticism and angel worship. This is a tough one for us because it's not something that we're super familiar with. But Paul says, don't let anybody disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. So what they think likely happened way back in the time of this church is that some shaman-like figure within the church had attracted a following by presenting himself as something like a Christian spiritual guide. They claimed to have superior insight into the spiritual realm, and they were advising the Colossian Christians to practice certain rites and taboos and rituals as a means of protecting from evil spirits and getting deliverance from afflictions. See, it was also thought that by the harsh treatment of your body, which is the definition of asceticism, that you would hurt your body in some way in order to have a spiritual experience, and then out of that spiritual experience, you could actually encounter an angel and get a word right from an angel for you. That's what this is talking about. So there were people that would hurt their body, mutilate it even, so that they could have an experience and see an angel. Biblically, that is a terrible idea. I don't even think that's an overstatement. Because anytime an angel appears in the scripture, it only does so at the sending of God himself, and any time that a human encounters an angel in Scripture, they do. Their instinct is they want to fall down and worship it because it's so magnificent. But the angel every time stops them and says, do not worship me. Worship God, not me. I'm only his messenger. Except for one time. There's one angel in Scripture that wants to receive worship. Do you know it? The devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All these I will give to you, Jesus, if you fall down and worship me. If we are chasing spiritual puffed up experiences, anything that would cause us to treat our bodies harshly in order to conjure up an experience with something mystical, we are practicing what Paul tells the church not to do. And you are engaging in those very things into the demonic realm and opening yourself up to isolation and destruction. I want you to hear that. Does any of that ever happen today? Do we see asceticism and angel worship today? Not quite like that, but I'm always fascinated at the number of people who are so into zombies. It's like all the rage can't tell you about all the kids that I've had in youth groups over the years that felt like if they could become a Wiccan, that they could use their magic to be helpful to other people. They're chasing down things that are evil to try to get power or to try to have some kind of experience. I even got to go to a conference in Florida a couple years ago called Exponential. There's a guy in a Las Vegas church that was talking about this guy that came to his church one Sunday. He was a ghost hunter. So he's telling him all these things about how he's going to find these ghosts and all the different places he's going. And he goes, he goes, listen, he goes, on my phone, I've got a ghost tracker app. And he goes, you know what? It never goes off. But today in your church, it went off. Right? He had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And it's so weird. That's the kind of stuff that's alive in our day. Asceticism. And the harsh treatment of your body to get an experience 
that's kind of gone underground. But it's very real and it's very tragic, especially in the teenage world. Because there's a mindset that says, if I cut my flesh, it will relieve the pain and I will feel better. If I get into that community and I do those drugs, I'll feel this. It's the asceticism of our day. Cutting always happens in isolation. There's no parties to celebrate that. Something that's done in secret and in shame. The drugs that you could take to get into the community that would make you feel included, eventually those drugs lead to isolation. And that isolation in any of those cases always leads to a dark and destructive place. So no matter what anybody would want to tell you, none of those things are of Christ. Those are demonic forces bent on destroying you. So Paul warns the church about that. If we're not careful about evil arts and physical self-harm, it can take us off the path. Now there's one more here. This is the fifth one. Self-made religion. So Paul finishes up that thought in verse 23. So they have indeed, these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, the severity of the body. They are no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Can you see the quandary of the Colossian church? Roman and Greek philosophy and traditions don't do it for us. The Jewish standard of life doesn't do it for us. The mystical perspective where we would try to chase down these experiences doesn't do it for us. So what should we do? Let's just make up our own version. Everybody else is. And it comes down to this thing where when Paul talks about self-made religion, the actual translation of that word comes out to be will worship. It's worship according to whatever one's fancy is. It's worship imposed merely by the human will, not by divine authority. See, the Colossian church ran the risk of prescribing worship for themselves based on whatever they wanted or they thought was good in the moment. And the risk in doing this is that they would worship in a way that completely disregarded God. So they could customize and they could change rules whenever and however they wanted to, regardless of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. They could make it as rigid or as loose as they wanted to. So it would be worship that was based on what they could get out of it. I know sometimes worship and church experiences, they're built out of cultural norms. But unfortunately, based on the wild culture of their time, their worship experiences ran the risk of becoming incredibly distorted. So we ever see anything like that in our day? Can you say self-made religion? Absolutely. Uh, this last week or so, I was meeting with another youth pastor. We were planning out Lake Champion retreats. And this lady that had gone to his church, they had moved away. And then she was talking about where they had moved to. Uh, and they were trying to find a church based on where they were living now. And so the conversation turned into like, well, what do you like about the church? What don't you like? And I'm listening to this, and it concluded with this phrase. She got a big smile on her face and talked about the church they were going to. And she says, you got to love that hype. Is that it? Is that why we would choose a church? Because of the hype? Is that where all the changes that have happened in worship in the last 20, 30 years, is that where it leads us? That a church service is all about the experience of hype we get? Yes, we are experiential sensory people and we engage with our senses, but is the measure of worship what we get out of it? So I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, I got nothing out of that service. I just want to real quickly and snidely, I don't, but I want to. I want to say, well, did God get anything out of you? Is it about how we feel or is it about his glory? So Christian Smith, another bald guy, said many, many Americans view God as a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. The church is often seen as a dispenser of religious goods and services the enjoyment of those who put money in the offering plate. We cannot be a gospel-centered church and make worship about us. Another great thinker of our day, Charles Corbett. This is when you don't press into Christ, you will inevitably return to yourself 
and what you think we're missing. Worship is more than that. So here's just a little comedy break for us. Diego wasn't bald, so I made him bald. So... I'm all about consistency, right? (laughs) Anyway, so I want to say this. When it comes to worship, there are two things that are needed and only two things. I know that's a provocative statement, but I want you to hear me out. For worship to happen, you need an object. Jesus Christ is our object. There will never be another better, more suitable object than him. He is it and we need to keep it that way. Second thing is it needs your heart. The expression of what those two things look like can take on all kinds of facets. It can look all kinds of ways, but if we aren't careful, we will take the expression and make it the object. That is not of Christ. So if we're not careful, just like the Colossian church, Any of these five things could take us off the path. Take a look at them. Those are real-time threats to the church in our day, too. So Paul says to them, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? Why in the world if you are still, why do you act like you're still alive in the world and why do you submit to it? Why do you give it ground? He's making a huge plea to the church to pay attention and to wake up. We need to hear that same call today. So you know how Paul answers those questions? You know how he answers those issues? For every one of them, he directs them back to Jesus. I'll hit this for you real quick. But if you're struggling with plausible arguments that could delude you, Paul says, seek to understand Jesus so that you would be knit together in love and you would reach the riches of all full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Dealing with philosophy and the deceit of human traditions, Paul says, walk with Jesus. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him and be rooted and built up in him, established in your faith. Religious observance is the issue. He says, be filled by the work of Christ. Listen to what Jesus has done for you. For in him the fullness of deity dwells. You have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. In him you were circumcised. You were buried with him in baptism. You were also raised with him through faith. You who were dead, God has made alive together with him. He has forgiven us. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. Why do you want fullness anywhere else? He gives it to you. You're dealing with the asceticism and the angel worship and the weird demonic stuff of the world. It says, be fulfilled by Christ. You don't need those other things because any other thing like that could be a shadow, but the substance and what you really need is in Christ. If you're dealing with self-made religion, he says, set your focus on Jesus, which spills us over into chapter three where we're gonna spend the next several weeks. This is, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Not all the stuff that's going on around you. So why is Paul saying all this to the church? Obviously because they're threats. But I want you to see these boards up here. You see them? Okay. Just making sure you're still with me. I know it's been a long time. He's praying that. This prayer speaks to every one of those threats. That's why he's struggling in prayer for the church. That's why he's saying, I'm getting down on my face before God and I'm asking him to fill you with wisdom and understanding from the Holy Spirit, not from all the nonsense of the culture around you. We're gonna pray that prayer at the end of the service. I know Greg prayed it at the beginning. That's a prayer I would encourage you to adopt for living faith, for Glasstown, for Christ's community for any of the other churches in our community, no matter what the label is on the outside of the building? Can you imagine Vineland area with churches like that? You need to hear this call. So here's what I want you to do. I know I've been using this phrase, stay on the path. 
actually comes from Jesus. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. For you personally, what path are you on? There's only two. There's only one that leads to God. So Paul says, examine yourselves. See whether you are in the faith. I just saw a quote this week that said, sometimes Christians are like rocks in the bottom of a stream. They're in it, but the water never gets inside. That's tragic. Be more like a sponge instead of a rock. Soak it up. Pour it out. Soak it up again. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes here as we close our service. I'm going to ask you to stand. Actually, no, you can stay seated. Sorry. I'm going to have our prayer people come. But Abby and Ryan are going to lead us in a song here in a minute. But I want to give you a minute to examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Are you with Jesus? Is he really in you as the Lord of your life? He will not share that seat with anyone else, including you. There's only one place. It's him and him. So this is a time for reflection. This is a time to assess if any of these issues and threats are in front of you that could take you away from Christ. And it's a call to return to the Lord. Return in all that you are. Bring him your mess. Bring him your struggles. Bring him your hurts. Bring him your joys. Bring him your sorrows. Bring it all to him. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to examine yourself. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to celebrate, celebrate. You have freedom to do that here today. So we want to be a gospel-centered, Christ-focused church, always and forever. If we lose that, we've lost it. Take a few minutes.